Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're back again in this text, verses 1 through 16. The third of three parts. A message entitled, In League with the Devil. In League with the Devil. Matthew chapter 26. And verses 1 through 16. Beloved, history is replete with infamous villains, men and women who have betrayed both friend and comrade in the most despicable ways. We can thank William Shakespeare and his play Julius Caesar for immortalizing the words, et tu, Brute, even you, Brutus, As Marcus Brutus was found among the assassins of Julius Caesar, Caesar's closest friend. In American history, there is probably no greater villain or more notorious traitor than one Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold was a general in the Revolutionary Army a very capable man who himself uh, participated in the uh, assault and capture of Fort Ticonderoga, a significant uh, early battle in the American Revolution. He also is credited with saving the day at the Battle of Saratoga, which was an important turning point in the American Revolution. Benedict Arnold was among the best and the brightest of the revolutionary American generals. But Benedict Arnold was later stung by accusations of financial improprieties that questioned his character, questioned his competency with regard to various military operations, He was, in his opinion, not properly credited with his role, particularly in the Battle of Saratoga. And it led to great disillusionment. At one point in his life, he became so disillusioned with the American cause and the lack of of, uh, recognition of his contributions to that cause that he reached out to the British and offered to turn over the American fort at West Point, New York to the British Army in exchange for the payment of 10,000 pounds. In the providence of God, Major John Andre, his contact in the British Army was captured by American forces, and it was found that he had on his person various documents that had been given to him by Benedict Arnold, and the plot was uncovered just in time to keep the fort from falling to the British, which, if it had fallen, would have likely split the colonies north and south. When it was discovered that the jig was up, so to speak, Benedict Arnold fled avoiding capture, joining the British side, and conducting throughout the course of the war a series of raids on the American positions. 
He was never fully trusted by the British, and following the war, he bounced between London and Canada, trying to find a place to settle, and eventually died in 1801 penniless and essentially without friend. His name is legendary in American history as a traitor to be a Benedict Arnold. But as legendary as his name is, of course, there is one name that rises above all the rest. And it is the name Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. And his sad tale is told to us here in Matthew chapter 26 and beginning in verse 1. Let me read it for you. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival... Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went out or went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. We said this section of Matthew's gospel is a drama of sorts. A drama in which we can find three movements. And so that's how we have broken it down. Three movements in the dark and devilish drama whereby the light of the world is betrayed into the hands of wicked men. Two weeks ago, we looked at that first movement in verses 1 through 5, calling it Israel's diabolical plot. Last week, we looked at the second movement in verses 6 through 13, and we were calling that Jesus' stinging rebuke. And that takes us to the third and probably darkest moment of all in verses 14 through 16, Judas damnable betrayal. Judas's damnable betrayal. Beloved, in Luke's gospel in chapter 4 and verse 13, we find this written for us following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his public ministry. Luke records, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. 
Beloved, that opportune time came on a Tuesday night of Passion Week when Satan's plans and Judas' plans coincided one with another. This morning, I want to unpack with you verses 14, 15, and 16 of this section, Judas' damnable betrayal. And I want to do it in a series of three questions and answers. So our basic format this morning will be to ask and answer three questions drawn out of this section. So question number one is simply this. What did Judas do? You might say, well, that's kind of an obvious question, but I think it's worth pausing and asking. What did Judas do? The answer to the question, and I give it to you up front, is simply this, defection. Defection. Notice what Matthew says for us here. Then one of the twelve, then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Who was Judas? Who was this man? We don't really know a lot about him, actually. He appears in a few of the lists of the disciples, but there's not a lot of information about the man. We believe this about him. Well, we know for sure he is one of the twelve, but we believe this about him, that based on a The derivative of his name, Iscariot, which likely means a man of Kerioth, that he was uh, from the, the area of Judea rather than Galilee. That would make him different from the other 11 apostles or disciples, the close compatriots of Jesus. He was a man of Judea. They were of Galilee. Nothing is said to us about the when and the how that Jesus came, or excuse me, Judas came to follow Jesus. But I think it would be safe enough to assume that it was in a similar fashion as the others. That is, that he heard the words of the Savior, he saw the miracles of the Savior, and then left his normal life to follow after this prophet from Galilee. We know from Matthew chapter 10 that like the other 11, he was commissioned by Jesus and sent out to preach the gospel and to to perform miracles, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, as did all the others. We also know based on John chapter 12 and verse Six, that he was the treasurer for the little band of followers. He was the treasurer. That means that he had control of the purse. He kept the money box out of which they would pay their operational expenses. Again, I think it's reasonably safe to assume that if he was entrusted with the money box, that he must have been well thought of. He must have been a man that the other disciples believed was a man of integrity and a a man of, of administrative competence to be entrusted with these things. Furthermore, we know that 
he maintained some measure of respectability and I would argue illusion before the rest of the disciples because there in the upper room, according to John 13, when Jesus says that you will betray me, they are looking one at another and saying, who, me? And they have no idea that it's Judas. Even when Jesus passes the sop to him and Judas gets up and leaves, they all think he's going out to buy something to give to the poor. So they have no idea. No idea that he's the, tra- the betrayer, he's the defector. All of that leads me to believe and conclude that he must have been a man of very high reputation. A man well thought of. A very dangerous deceiver indeed. Jesus himself, citing Psalm 41 and verse 9, says... Speaking of Judas, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas was part of that inner group of disciples. Not the closest group, not the three, but he was certainly part of the twelve. Judas Iscariot, verse 14 went to the, to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? What I want you to see here is that it is Judas that initiates the contact. It is Judas who goes to the Sanhedrin. It is not the Sanhedrin that comes to Judas. He is a defector. It is Judas who goes to them, and notice that it is Judas who raises the issue of payment. What are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me? Mark, recording this event in Mark 14, verse 10, says that Judas went in order to betray him. In order to betray him. In other words, Judas' mind was made up before he even left for the meeting. Before he left for the meeting. They did not talk him into something. He went to do something. What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Luke tells us in Luke 22 and verse 5 that the leadership rejoiced at the prospect that one of the inner group would privately betray Christ. They were overjoyed. It solved their problem, right? Not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people and then a gift is dropped in their lap. In comes through their door one of the inner core who comes to them and says, what will you give me to sell him out? So they offer him 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. According to Exodus chapter 21 in verse 32, 30 pieces of silver is the price of a common slave. It is the price of a male slave who is gored by an ox. The owner of the ox must compensate the master of the slave 30 pieces of silver. 
Zechariah, the prophet in Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, speaks of this event. It is alluded to here, and it is spoken more overtly later on. We're speaking sarcastically there. The the voice of the Messiah, speaking prophetically through Zechariah, says basically that they will sell me, decide what I'm worth, and they will sell me for 30 pieces of silver. Nothing more than a slave. Evidently, that was Judas' view of Christ. He's worth the price of a common slave. And by the way, the allusion to Zechariah's prophecy, and here over in, for example, chapter 27, and I just turn you there in verses 9 and 10, where you can see it is directly cited, is an important observation, I believe, because what it indicates is, is that the events here occur in the sovereign decree and plan of God. The betrayal for 30 pieces of silver is in the fulfillment of the prophecy given through the prophet Zechariah, meaning that God is sovereignly in control of all of these events even this most despicable of events. And that's exactly what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you betrayed him into the hands of wicked men. Yet Jesus says here in Matthew 26 and verse 24, it would have been better that Judas had never been born. What will you give me to betray him? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Verse 16, from then on, from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Grammatically, what we can can see here is that, that Judas from this point on is constantly looking for the chance to betray him. It just speaks of the, of the reality that, that he is sold out at this point to sell him out. Constantly looking for his chance. By the way, I believe that this is why we have that unusual account where the disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, where do you want uh, us to, to set up and celebrate the Passover? You remember that? And all the disciples are coming to him, and they're saying, where do we go to celebrate the Passover? And he won't tell them. And he says to to just a couple of the the two, Peter and John, and and he, he says to them, go into the city and you will find a man carrying a pitcher of water and say to him that the the master basically wants the room that's been prepared to celebrate the the Passover and, and follow him and he'll take you to the room. You can believe that Judas was among those disciples that were saying to him, where is it going to be? Where are we going to celebrate the Passover, Master? Why? Because that's the place, that's the opportunity, that's the strategic moment to get Jesus alone and away from the crowd so that the, so that the authorities can come and snatch him away in the middle of the night. But wise as serpents and gentle as doves, Jesus will not 
give in and instead prearranges and beloved i can't prove all this but but this is my my opinion on all of this is is that wednesday the silent wednesday of the passion week that jesus has worked working out the details ahead of time with the whole the host of the house where the room will be and the sign of the man and the picture and all the rest of it i don't think that that's just like his omniscience that he knows all this stuff i think jesus worked it all out a plan to keep judas in the dark so that Jesus could celebrate the Passover and yet still die on the Passover. More of that later when we get to that section. But Jesus, or excuse me, Judas, and this is going to be a struggle all morning. And if I mess it up, I, I'm relying on you to put the right name in the spot, okay? All right, my orthodoxy is, you know, not to be compromised here by a slip of the tongue. <laughs> Judas is looking, 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 looking for the good opportunity to betray Jesus. The second question. Why did Judas do it? Why did he do it? Well, it's because God is sovereign and all people are little robots that do exactly what God has pre-programmed to do. No. God is sovereign. And in his decree, which he does not reveal to us, He had decreed such things. Peter is very clear in Acts 2 and verse 23 about such things. And yet Judas is very, very, very very culpable for his actions. Jesus said it would have been better for him not to be born, right? The Son of Man is to go, verse 24, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he was not, if he had not been born. So there is moral responsibility. There's moral culpability here. That takes us to the question of motivation. Why did Judas do what he did? What's his motivation? Well, we can't be sure. We can't be sure of his motivation. Just like we can't be sure of anyone's motivation. The motives that drive people lie in the secret place. They lie within the heart, right? And there is this persistent problem that you and I have, which is that we can't see into the heart. In fact, uh, the problem is so great that we have trouble seeing into our own heart most of the time. So to think we can see clearly into the heart of another person is a fool's errand. So we cannot say absolutely completely that we can can know the motivations of Judas however however the scriptures do give us the ability to make certain observations and observations that I do think reveal something of the motives of what was going on so I don't think it's an illegitimate question to ask why did Judas do what he did I think the, the answer to it, uh, the full-orbed answer would be is we're not entirely sure and we, and we won't know, but we can make some educated observations. So why did he do what he did? I believe the text 
this text and others reveal to us that there are a, a, a number of reasons, both natural and supernatural. Natural and supernatural. That is, there are, there are those that, that uh, welled up and abided from within him, and there were those that came from the outside, influences from the outside. So let me start first with the, from the outside, the supernatural realm. And, and the answer, the, the first part of the answer of motivation, I think, has to do with that person himself, Satan. Satan. I'm going to turn you over to uh, John chapter 6. John 6. John 6 is the account of the feeding of the 5,000 and the results of that miracle. And remember when we talked about that eons ago here in Matthew, that the feeding of the 5,000 was quite an amazing miracle. It it was accomplished probably uh, sometime six months or so, maybe as much as a year, um, before this, this time here in Matthew 26, before the Passion Week. It, was, it represented essentially the collapse of what was known as the Galilean, uh, the greater Galilean ministry, where Jesus spent 18 months uh, preaching and doing miracles in and around uh, the Sea of Galilee. That, that, uh, that campaign, that, that Galilean um, ministry collapsed, and it collapsed with the event of the feeding of the 5,000. From that point on, Jesus and, uh, was almost frantic, the text would seem to indicate, to to try to find alone time with his disciples to prepare them for what was inevitably coming to them, which was his arrest and crucifixion. So this is a very important event that John narrates for us and gives us considerable detail on here in John chapter 6. And what I want to, uh, to suggest to you first is there was a certain satanic direction to Judas' heart that was observable here following the collapse of the greater Galilean ministry. The end of chapter 6, of course, it says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter, speaking for the group, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, verse 70, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, to call him a devil suggests that there is already satanic direction to his life, that, that, that he is moving in concert with the evil one. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, right, where, where Jesus says, I'm going to die, right? And Peter sits him down and says, let me just tell you how it really is, Lord, right? Far be it. And what does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, who? Satan. Because at that moment in time, Peter was moving in the same direction as Satan. Here, evidently, Judas is moving in that direction, so there is, a, there is the satanic direction going on here. I would suggest beyond that there is satanic suggestion in chapter 13 and verse 2 of John's gospel. This is the night of the Last Supper. So This is Thursday night. 
John begins this little section here in, in John 13, talking about the Last Supper with a little bit of background material for the reader. And, and it says, verse 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So Satan had already put it into his heart, John tells us. So I call that satanic suggestion. So there's a satanic direction. Now there is satanic suggestion. Beyond that, there is satanic possession. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. And we'll pick it up in verse 1, get the context, Luke 22 and 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people, so we're right in the same context. Notice verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the, twelve, to the number of the twelve. Satan entered into him. This is satanic possession. We encounter demon possession, and in many places in the New Testament, satanic possession is, is, is demon possession of the highest order. By the way, I, I think the, uh, this event, verse 3 here, is occurring here on Tuesday night. On Tuesday night. John 13, there at the Last Supper, we see a second incident of satanic possession. So Satan entered into him there, I believe, on Tuesday night here in John 13 and verses 26 and 27. When Jesus handed Judas the sup, verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So evidently, Satan entered into and take, took possession of Judas on two separate occasions, both related to this betrayal, this defection. First, to, to send Judas out to seek to betray him, and then to send him from the supper to, to go and to get the authorities to bring them back to arrest him. So there is a, there is a strong supernatural aspect to what is going on here. Why did Judas do this? And I think you cannot uh, underestimate the influence and power of, of Satan himself. Right? Satan left Christ until an opportune time. This is the opportune time. In fact, verse 16, Matthew 26, looking for a good what? Opportunity. Opportunity. So, there is the supernatural. Beyond that, there is the natural. This raises the question of disillusionment. Disillusionment. Why did Judas do it? The possibility of disillusionment. I have a, a question mark in my notes next to, next to the statement disillusionment, next to the word disillusionment. And the, and the reason I do that is because I'm not sure on this. But this is very popular among people, and it, and it certainly has a, a certain sense of credibility to it, at least in a general way. The popular theories go something like this. One is that Judas was, uh, excuse me, that um, 
Jesus was not the political deliverer that, Ju- that Judas expected him to be. When Judas signed up with him, he was expecting Jesus to be the Messiah, the political deliverer from Rome. That's what he wanted. That's what he fell in love with, as it were. And then later, as he came to realize that, uh, that, that Jesus was not what he fell in love with, his love turned to hatred. Kind of, you know, like Amnon and Tamar. You remember that? In 2 Samuel, first he loves her, and then he, he rapes her, and then it says he hates her with, a, with the hatred that uh, exceeded the love with which he loved her. So that's one popular theory, is that, that Jesus just didn't measure up to what Judas fell in love with. Another is, is that Judas acted in order to sort of force Jesus' hand. That is, to, to cause Jesus to either make a deal with the Sanhedrin to share power or to openly declare himself as Messiah and back up those claims with miracles and basically overthrow the Sanhedrin. That's another popular theory of the disillusionment motive. So it's essentially that Jesus doesn't turn out like what Judas thought he signed up for, and so therefore he takes matters into his own hands. And again, they would look for support in this in, in uh, John's gospel and in the, and in the events of chapter 6, right? The crowds, according to John 6, the crowds want to force Jesus and, and make him king. He's fed 20,000 people. They say, okay, let's grab him. Let's make him king. And Jesus um, sends them away. He eludes their grasp. He's not interested in being the political deliverer. Instead, he responds back to them with a, with a call for total spiritual commitment. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And we're told in John 6 that, that this is a, a, a hard statement, a difficult statement. Not difficult to understand, difficult to accept. And so they want nothing more to do with him. And they leave him. They abandon him. The end of John 6. The idea is, is, is that as the crowds leave, as it becomes obvious that the Galilean uh, ministry is collapsing around him, his popularity is, is going to be shrinking that Judas is growing disillusioned with this whole thing. And then there on the Mount of Olives on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus slams the door shut on the nation when he proclaims judgment upon the nation, right? And he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord, comes in the name of the Lord. And so for Judas, like the whole thing has crumbled. He's given his life to this and it has fallen apart all around him. And so he therefore is greatly disillusioned. And so he goes to the authorities to try to make something happen. Later, the, those would say he, he realizes the folly of his behavior and he goes out and he kills himself. I don't think so. I'm not saying there wasn't delusionment, uh, disillusionment, it was delusion too, but, but disillusionment involved. I just, I just don't, I think that uh, doesn't really uh, comport with all the facts. Like Jesus saying in John chapter 6 and verse 70, one of you is a devil. One of you is a devil, meaning that, that Judas is committed to betrayal right there and right then. Not waiting until, you know, Jesus comes into the city, rides in on the, on the donkey ride, and everybody loves him. And, but then he, uh, he messes up by, on Monday and Tuesday, offending everybody until they'll have no part of him. The problem is, is that, that Judas is already, at that point, actively opposed to Christ. 
Beyond that, in John 6, uh, I don't know if you're there or not, but you can go back there and look at it real quick. John 6 and uh, verse 71. It says, Now he meant Judas, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And if you check the margin of your Bible, it could, the Greek there could be translated, uh, was intending to betray him. If that's a good translation, was intending to betray him, it gives you the idea that, is that, that Judas had already made up his mind while Jesus was still popular. And beyond that, back to Matthew 26, verse 15, Judas' own actions here, where he goes and he says, what are you willing to give me, doesn't sound like the verbiage of a political uh, campaign or, or someone who is just discouraged or disillusioned because their, their favorite politician didn't really turn out to be everything they wanted. He's going to sell them out. So, was there disillusionment on the part of Judas? Yeah, Probably. But was that the underlying motive? I don't think so. I think the text would actually lead us in another direction, and that's where I go now. And, and what I would say is one of, the, one of the serious underlying motives, maybe the underlying natural motive, was greed. It was greed. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 4 and following. Speaking about the events... Right? Of Mary and her anointing of Jesus with the, with the perfume, the spikenard. Remember we said this happened on Saturday night? So Saturday night's a flashback. John tells us that very clearly, six days before the Passover, verse 1. But I want you to go down to verse 4. But Judas, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, given to the poor? He said to him, uh, now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus, therefore, said to him, let her alone so she may keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor. You won't always have me. Judas was embezzling. Judas was a thief. Judas was a thief. His even approach to the leadership. What will you give me? How much will you pay me to turn him in? He was concerned with material gain. By the way, uh, turn over to 1 Timothy. It's a rainy day. You guys aren't going anywhere, are you? 1 Timothy chapter 6. You've heard me say this before. I'm kind of persuaded that the Apostle Paul, when he went out on his missionary church planting activities, had a copy of the Matthew scroll under his arm. You just see a lot of of, um, what Matthew writes in Paul's preaching. But notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7, maybe reflecting on these events. He says, verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Paul warns of the danger of greed. The danger of greed. And how it destroys the Christian faith. We have living examples. Do you remember old Demas? You remember him? If you don't, let me just, or or, or if it's a little foggy in your mind, let me reacquaint you. Turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Colossians written during Paul's uh, two-year Roman imprisonment as narrated in the final chapters of the book of Acts. There at the end of Colossians, a letter he writes to the church at Colossae. And he's sending greetings to the church there. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas. So Demas is counted among the faithful, among the workers with Paul. One of his closer associates. And then you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Pinned right there at the end of Paul's life. As he has been re-imprisoned in Rome, now a number of years later, perhaps five, maybe six years, maybe even a little longer than that, later, facing the executioner's blade. And notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. I'll pick it up in 9. He says, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He has deserted. One who was to be commended to the church has now deserted the cause of Christ. Acts chapter 8 and verse 20. We're introduced to the sad case of Simon. There the gospel has gone to Samaria and there's been a a, a movement of the spirit and Samaritans have gotten saved. And there is this uh, character, Simon, who it says has, uh, has professed faith. He, he has believed. He's been baptized. And then the apostles come up from Jerusalem and, and they perform uh, these, these miracles. And, and, and by the laying out of their hands, the, the Samaritans begin to evidence the receipt of the Spirit and the speaking of tongues, showing to the early church that, that in the body of Christ, in this new work of God, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Uh, Samaritans are welcomed on the same and equal footing as the Jews. But he is impressed with the ability to, to impart the gift of the speaking in tongues. And so he wants to buy it. Wants to buy it. Notice verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. History tells us that Simon became a fierce opponent of the church. We certainly have the case of Judas himself. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is preaching to his disciples, certainly the twelve, 
And where he says in verse 24 of chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Not it's difficult, you cannot do it. You will hate one and love the other. It's impossible. It's impossible. Judas. Sells the Messiah for the price of a slave. Greed, beloved, I think. Greed lies at the bottom of his motivations. But I think anger also plays a part. I'm back in Matthew 26. I think anger plays a part. What part did anger play? I think anger was the trigger. I think anger was the final trigger here. It was the trigger event. And again, uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm putting this together from, from, from the text and the context and the, and, the, and the way the events are ordered and narrated to us. Right? So in John 12, we're told that the, that the event with the perfume and the rebuking of the disciples, in which John tells us that Judas is the chief spokesman. Because why? Well, because he's stealing. And Judas severely rebukes the disciples, meaning Jesus Jesus severely rebukes Judas. That's Saturday night. Yet when you're in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, who both recount the event, notice that they lift the event of of the anointing with perfume out of its historical context and they draw it forward to Tuesday night. They insert it into the narration of Tuesday night. Chronologically, you would go from 5 to 14. But they give us, Matthew and Mark both give us 6 to 13, the event that occurred before. Why in this place? I think the answer has to be is because it is the event that happened Saturday night that moved Judas to put his plan into action. Verse 14, Matthew 26. Then, what then? Then after the anointing. Well, not strictly chronologically, no. But motivationally, yeah. Yeah. Judas was humiliated by Christ. He was rebuked sharply by Christ. And I think he was so piqued by that that his anger welled up within him and and he launched his plan. And he began to seek out how he might betray him. I think anger was the trigger. And that takes us to our third and final question, and I think we can move through it somewhat quickly. And it's a question of uh, what can we learn? What can we learn from this? Question of application, right? No doubt the Spirit of God has already been working in us, even as we've been studying this text together right now, to make certain applications. But let me just suggest a few and... I'll move through it very quickly here, but, but here they are. One, it's this. Some people who associate closely with Jesus will ultimately deny him. That is, a, that is a difficult reality to come face to face with, but I don't think there's any way to avoid it. You do not have to be involved in Christian ministry for very long. 
to encourage to encounter the heartbreak of defection. Some who closely associate with Jesus will ultimately deny him. Beloved, someone in this room, someone in this room will ultimately deny Christ. Someone. Maybe more than one. May that sober us. May that sober us. Beyond that, proximity to the truth does not guarantee belief. Proximity to the truth does not guarantee belief. Notice verse 14 again. Then one of the twelve. One of the twelve. Hanging around the truth is not the same thing as embracing the truth. Clinging to the truth. Quickly, miracles do not produce faith. Miracles do not produce faith. Not observing them, not even doing them, produces faith. For if I read Matthew 10 rightly, Judas was right in the thick of it, doing all kinds of spectacular miracles. Miracles do not produce faith. Beyond that, I think it's a valid Observation that disillusionment can lead to withdrawal if not humbly dealt with. Listen, you don't have to hang around people very long to become disillusioned. Why? Because we're sinners. And sinners sin. And we fail each other and we let each other down and we don't keep our word. And, and we don't fulfill our, best obli- our, our highest and best uh, goals. And you, you can become disillusioned. You become disillusioned, I think, when you have a higher uh, a view of what should be expected of a sinner. We need to deeply embrace the gospel in these things. Two more. Anger is a foothold for Satan to attack the citadel of our hearts. Anger is a foothold for Satan to attack the citadel of our hearts. It's how he gets in. It's how he climbs the wall. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 26 and 27, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil what? An opportunity. Is that word again? An opportunity. And one more. Greed destroys discipleship. And incites defection from the Lord. Greed destroys discipleship and incites defection from the Lord. We could close here now and that'd be hard. Beloved of the gospel. The gospel is the anchor of our soul. The gospel is the is the answer to our to our predicament. 
Jesus came into this world to live, to die, to rise again, that he might break the back of sin. Might break its back. That he might share with those who would receive him by faith the life of the age to come. In their very soul. That sin would no longer have dominion over them. That they would be transferred from the realm of sin and death in Adam. Now united with Christ, they would live free in the realm of life, grace, truth. Jesus sets us free. He sets us free. So there is definitely a a place to to examine our own hearts, a place for introspection in our earlier scripture reading out of 1 John 3. There's certainly much there to to think about and love and how do we we live out this faith we proclaim. But, But, beloved, it is never based on my performance. It is not about how good am I doing. It is about what God has done in Christ. And he invites me to to believe upon that reality. And he will set me free. I encourage you this morning, if your faith is wavering, if you find yourself in a place where you know you shouldn't be, there is a way back. Jesus' arms are open wide. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the depth and breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is no prepayment that we must make. Thank you that we don't need to labor under the delusion that we could somehow make ourselves savable or that we must make ourselves savable. Instead, we come with all of our guilt, all of our wretchedness. And we lay it at the cross of Christ. Like Pilgrim in in Bunyan's allegory. We come to the cross weighed down with the burden of sin and we, we let it go. And yet like Bunyan's allegory, oh Lord, it seems that we continue to pile it back on. Help us to recognize the reality of what Christ has done in us and may you Enable us to live free in Christ. May the gospel wash our hearts and minds. May it set our priorities. May it wash our and direct our thinking. And for that one or ones here this morning, Father, who are on a path of destruction... They've either turned from the path of life to the path of destruction or, or they've never even attempted to enter into the path of life. May today be their day. Save them, O oh God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.